Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, this is Zivi Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And speaking of books, I have two of my own books coming out this spring and summer. Princess Charming is a picture book, which debuts on April 19th, and Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature comes out on July 1st, and it is truly a labor of love. I hope you'll pre-order, order, and join me on tour as I go across the country. You can find out more at zibbyowens.com or bookendsmemoir.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens because I always post about everything. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. I need your help. If you love this podcast, you will love my children's book. It's called Princess Charming, and I am really trying to drum up pre-order sales. You might not know this, but before a book comes out is actually a really important time for the whole book's trajectory. So please pre-order Princess Charming, which comes out April 19th today. Just stop what you're doing and go do that, please. When it arrives on April 19th, you can give it to a loved one in your life, a niece, a grandchild, a child, a student, a kid walking by on the street, anybody. But if you could do this, here is my offer. If you email me your receipt showing me that you bought the book online somewhere and pre-ordered it, email info at zibbyowens.com. That's info at zibbyowens.com. And I will pick 10 people to do a special giveaway project award too from my new Bonfire merch store, which you should also check out, which is um, the Zibby Owens Media Bonfire store where you can get all sorts of cool t-shirts and uh, tote bags and author sayings and all sorts of great stuff. So what did I say? 10 of you are going to get a special care package of your choice from the Bonfire store. And I will pick at random from all of you who pre-order the book. So if that wasn't clear, 
Go pre-order Princess Charming. Again, it's called Princess Charming. It's my debut picture book. It's really cute and great, and it's illustrated by Holly Haddam. And then after you get the receipt, screenshot it or forward it to me at info at zibbyowens.com, and you will be entered to win one of 10 exciting care packages. So go off and order. Thank you so much. Bye. Jane Green is the author of Sister Stardust, a novel. Jane is the author of 18 New York Times bestsellers and 19 USA Today bestsellers. She's a former journalist in the UK and a graduate of the International Culinary Center in New York. Her many novels include Jemima J, The Beach House, Falling, The Sunshine Sisters, and most recently, The Friends We Keep. She's also published a cookbook called Good Taste. Welcome, Jane. Thank you so much for coming back on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to talk about Sister Stardust. It's lovely to be here, Zibby. Always great to be on your podcast. Oh, thank you. Jane, tell listeners what your latest book is about, please. So Sister Stardust is my first biographical fiction. It was, you know, when I was young, I saw a photograph of an incredibly beautiful woman on a rooftop in Marrakesh. It was taken in in actually 1970 in this embroidered, actually, you know what, here, I have the photograph. I saw this. Wow. So uh, this photograph has sort of, it struck me and I I just found something that it had a magical ethereal quality. And I found out that her name was Talita Getty, that she died very young and very tragically. And I've spent my whole adult life wanting to know more about her. And when my editor said, have you ever thought of historical fiction? I immediately thought, "I, I want to I don't know what her story is, but I want to find out and I want to tell it. And so, you know, obviously you fiction, it's biographical fiction. So I created a protagonist, Claire, who lives in England in the 60s. And England in the 60s, we were still recovering from the Second World War. London was grey. It was covered in bomb sites, you know, where all the kids would play. My parents would, you know, play with their friends on bomb sites. And all of a sudden in the 60s, Britain won the World Cup and the pill was introduced. And, you know, all these things started to happen. Timothy Leary was doing research into psychedelic drugs at Harvard. And suddenly London burst into colour with its own music. You know, we had the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. So Claire is desperate to get to London. And once she does, she gets a job as a shop girl and she falls in with a rock band who are sort of loosely based, inspired by the Rolling Stones. And they spirit her off to Marrakesh to stay with Paul and Talita Getty. And and Paul Getty Jr. was the son of the richest man in the world. From the outside, they looked like they had everything. I mean, they bought this dilapidated palace in Marrakesh and had an American designer friend, Bill Willis, completely renovate it. And it was spectacular. And they threw these wild, orgiastic parties, you know, hundreds of people under the stars and picnics in the Atlas Mountains where all the houseboys would carry like onion tarts and tagines on brass trays into the mountains. But of course, behind closed doors, it was getting very dark and there were jealousies, you know, free love was complicated and living that lifestyle was complicated. And and also they were diving into, first of all, opium addiction and then heroin addiction. And so Claire, this young innocent girl is, you know, she thinks she's stepped into the Arabian Nights. And after a while, 
she has to get pulled in and and she doesn't realize the danger that that awaits and and it's a coming of age story that's set in the 60s and yeah my first my first biographical slash historical fiction wow so when you you had the idea you knew who you wanted to write about where did you go how did you start researching her and what did you find that you got really excited about early on yeah i well what was so interesting about her is that there's almost nothing written about her there's so little and i I rather suspect that, you know, the Getty family are enormously private and and insular. And and there were some mysterious circumstances around her death. I think Paul Getty, her husband, was felt, he felt culpable in some way. And the story changed a couple of times about how exactly and when. So there was so little written about her. So I had to find anybody who was in that circle. And I read everything I could. So it didn't matter how kind of extraneous they were or how much on the outskirts. I I read it. And every now and then I stumble upon a nugget about Talita or, you know, and sometimes the nuggets were quite big and and it was like finding, you know, the diamonds in the haystack. It was just amazing. And it took me about nine months of just constant reading, reading, reading. And by the end, I, I felt like I had a, a very good sense of who she was and why the things that happened to her happened. And the thing I, I think that I hadn't known was the trauma of her early life because she her, her father was a painter and they had gone to the Dutch East Indies, to Java, as it was then, to on a painting expedition. And the Japanese invaded while they were there and they rounded up all of the Dutch and threw them into prison camps. And there was a lot of inhumane treatment and torture. And Talita, you know, would, would one of her friends, you know, spoke of how he once sort of made a joke gesture at her face with, with his fingers and she shrunk back in fear and actually talked about how when she when she was a child, the Japanese, the guards in the in the prison camp would would poke their fingers into the children's eyes. And I think. Her mother then died shortly after. So I think she was deeply damaged despite being extraordinarily beautiful and having everything that you are supposed to to want. She wasn't just beautiful. She was vivacious. She was just fun-loving, free-spirited, and everybody fell madly in love with her. And it it wasn't enough to to save her from herself. That is a powerful story. I mean, the effects of trauma early on, you wonder what would she have been like? What would her life have been like had that not been her start? Well, and and also had she been alive today? Because of course, now we have access to so much. I mean, therapy and programs and retreats and treatment and medications. And I think in the 60s, particularly in England, because she was raised, her father went to England. So she was raised, first of all, in in Holland, but then in England. And it was a very different generation. And also our sensibilities were then, you're you're very stoic, you know, that you stiff up a lip. and, And there's a reason why the British colonized the world it was because the soldiers you know the boys were sent off to boarding school at at six and there was very little love and nurturing now I do think Talita had that from her stepmother I think she was very they had a very good relationship and her father but I I wonder about I wonder whether so much of the people who 
did dive into addiction in the 60s were were self-medicating. Mm. You know, they were they were running from their pain and drowning it in alcohol or or drugs. And I wonder whether so many of those extraordinary talents that we lost so early, you know, Jim Morrison, the list goes on and on, but the the 27 Club, Mark Bolan, whether things would have been different, you know, had they had access to some of the things we now have access to today. Who do you think Talita would be today? Like, who is she most comparable to in, in the celebrity world these days? even at her peak before the damage? Is there anybody that kind of resonates in that way? You know, I think Kate Moss, actually. I think Kate Moss is, I always think, because uh, the the other sort of huge inspiration for the book, although I, I didn't realize it when I started writing about it, I didn't realize how much the Rolling Stones were linked to Morocco in the 60s. And and Morocco was really an enormous retreat from them. Whenever things sort of blew up in London and whenever drugs were found or there was a drugs bust, the Rolling Stones would head out to Morocco. And there was a, a love triangle. Brian Jones was the founder of the Rolling Stones and he was this extraordinarily gifted musician. He put the band together. He found Keith and Mick. He named the Rolling Stones. And they always used to say about him, he could pick up any instrument. And and even if he'd never played it before, he would create something magical immediately. He was also enormously damaged. His girlfriend was a woman called Anita Pallenberg. Forgive me for being stuffed up. I'm getting over a cold, not COVID happily. But his girlfriend was this, this woman, Anita Pallenberg, who was terrifying and brilliant and beautiful. And she was very much the muse for the Rolling Stones. And actually she and Brian had a very troubled relationship. There was a lot of, he would beat her up. It was, it was really problematic. And they, after one of the drugs bust, it's a famous one called the Redlands bust, which happened at Keith Richards' home in, in England. Keith, Brian and Anita jumped into the back of his S3, Bentley S3 Continental, went to Tangier. Brian got pneumonia on the way. They dropped him off. And of course, Keith and Anita then fell madly in love in the back of the car. And that inspired the story, a lot of the story in Sister Stardust. But Anita Pallenberg was great friends with Kate Moss, you know, even as an older woman. And I, I think that Kate Moss has that kind of... I don't know, almost a a magical quality. She's a hard partier. And, uh, you know, friends of mine have worked with her on shoots and they always said it didn't matter how hard she partied. Once the camera was on, she was just magic. And I think think she is probably the one today that I, I think is most like the women of that era. Interesting. I love it. You have a whole nother piece of this book, which is Claire and Claire's story and her, the loss of her mother and her father and her stepmother and also her relationship to her own body and how she tries to come to terms with that. And it's almost the impetus for her leaving home is sort of sneaking food and, and all of that. And you have some really interesting lines about her relationship with food. So I was going to just read, if that's okay, just like a couple of quick lines. This is towards the beginning, but it's it's about Claire and her body. She said, I tried to fight it. I tried to bury myself in a book, but the words swam on the page. I could taste the chocolate, feel the chocolate, and I couldn't think about anything else. I raced downstairs, grabbed the tunics, and took them up to my bedroom, guilt, fear, and excitement, making my heart pound. And then you you say, 
for those few minutes of eating, I felt absolutely nothing. I didn't understand then that I was using food as a drug, numbing myself from pain, that no amount of numbness would stave off the crushing guilt and shame that would sweep over me the minute I finished eating, the minute that chocolate was all gone. I knew I had to finish them. And then later... You say, oh, what misery, I think now, looking back at young me. I was perfect just as I was. Why did we think that being thin was the answer to everything? How did we buy into such a ridiculous thing? Okay, so tell me tell me about this piece of the story. Well, I, you know, I, I've written about, I suppose, I can't say it's all women's relationship with food, and I, I am enormously gratified to see my daughter and her friends having a very, very different relationship to their bodies and to their food. So a lot of it is is about timing, is about growing up in the, you know, I was born in 1968. It was about growing up in the 70s and, and also growing up in a family where beauty and thinness was celebrated. There wasn't really an option. And I was clearly neither of those things. And so I grew up feeling like I was just a disappointment and inadequate in every way. And so that has has fueled a lot of my books. I mean, from my first book that was published in the States, Jemima J, to I, I didn't think I'd be writing about it again now, but I realized the really the, the culture of that time was extreme skinniness. Twiggy was who everybody aspired to be. And she really, she had the figure of a boy. And so the pressure on women was enormous. So so I decided that that Claire would be somebody who had to go through some of that journey. And actually, look, she she does it in that time you needed to be a certain way to, to have an odd, or I, I don't know that you needed to because there were people who didn't, but but it made life easier then. And I'm so happy that it's not that way anymore. I'm, I'm you know, so relieved for my children and the younger generation, but I certainly felt it. And, and I wanted to put that in the book because that was all sort of part of her journey. And the truth is, it doesn't really make much of a difference as that, you know, my weight has fluctuated my entire life. Sometimes I'm bigger, sometimes I'm smaller. Do I, do I feel different when I'm thinner? Well, I, I, I get to wear whatever I want. You know, I, I can, I love kind of being able to wear smaller, tighter clothes, but I'm also turning 54 this year and I'm really happy in, in a caftan or a poncho. You know, I've also, it's also menopause. I mean, I, I wish I was that. And I probably have to start doing some exercise now because I'm really, really bad at it. But, you know, I menopause sort of turns your whole life upside down. And I think that I'm too busy to fight it by doing three hours of exercise a day. It's just, that's that's never going to happen. I do walk. I could probably walk more. But it, it's the things that have made me stop and think and the the... You know, there are so many situations that that have come up again and again in my life, and they always find their way into my books. Interesting. I mean, I'm glad to hear that about your daughters. I don't feel like it's totally gone, though. I mean, I, I do feel that, I mean, at least from my vantage point, or maybe not just my kids, but social media and all that. I mean, I do feel there's a lot of pressure still. And with COVID, there's been a rise in eating disorders and young girls with Instagram and all of that. So I, I hope that what you're saying is the case as we move forward, but I'm not sure it's completely gone. So I I don't know that I agree with that. I also think there's a, a socioeconomic 
factor in that in that when you live in a in a big city like New York or like LA you know you still you have these girls who have a tremendous amount of pressure not just and I think a lot of it is actually for them the pressure of living up to their parents standards of going to schools that are intensely competitive of the fear that they're they are not good enough and so you know again I mean I was eating disordered because of that reason and so I think in towns that that have that kind of pressure absolutely the girls are still very much under it and I know I mean I I, I can count I mean I, I I know a number of of families right now whose daughters are struggling really hard with eating disorders and I live in Westport, Connecticut. I mean, of course that's going to happen. You go to somewhere like Austin, Texas, where my daughter is at university, that's not the case. Mm. And, and actually all sizes are celebrated. And I am seeing that more and more on Instagram with younger people, not perhaps in, in the cities. I think the pressure is still very much on. So it's time for me to take a trip to Austin, Texas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I once did a keynote some it was somewhere in the Midwest I don't even remember where it was but it was like somewhere like Ohio or and and I wasn't feeling very good about myself I was definitely on the bigger side and and afterwards there and it was it, there were a lot of men it was a it was a tech thing and there were a lot of men in the audience and afterwards the organizer was like oh they were all saying you know how pretty you are and I, and I was like oh my god I just I felt so good I was like I want to move here because <laughs> I was so awful about myself and I was getting this validation but that's also food for thought you know that that it's cultural as well that's true. I know we think that where we are sometimes, these are the only people, these are the only views, but there's a whole world out there. And yeah. <laughs> so for any people who need the consolation of that, it's very true. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So Jane, after all of this time you spent into Talita's life and, and this crazy time in history and all of that, what, like where, what has changed now about your view of the world and like how you're going about your life and like, how is this research and this writing and this process, how is, how, if at all, has it changed you? 
Well, you know, I think I started this journey actually when I turned 50. And I, in fact, my birthday party was a 70s Moroccan or 60s Moroccan birthday party. And it was, I, I think I, as I turned 50, I just thought, who the hell am I? You know, I've spent 50 years of my life trying to fit in, not feeling good enough. And I'm really, really fed up with this. And I've got to figure out who the hell I am, because I don't want to step into, you know, what Jung called the afternoon of life, not knowing. I don't want to live like this anymore. And and Talita was, you know, I, in fact, when I look back on, on my ideas for what I would wear, it was costume, you know, for my for my 50th, um, it's all pictures of Talita. It's Talita, Talita, Varushka, and Marissa Berenson, like all over my, my photo um, feed. So I think it started then. And I think sort of diving into her world, there's, I think I have a freedom that I didn't have before. I think I was, I was so frightened that people would see that I wasn't good enough, that I was always quite stiff and and was very rarely able to relax. And I think that I am much more relaxed. I definitely drink much more. Uh, <laughs> I definitely probably do, oh, I definitely do drugs more than I used to, sometimes a little bit too much. So, so the influence is, you know, I'm very aware of, of bad things that can happen. And the problem is I'm a lightweight, actually. That's the real problem. The problem is I, I don't, it's not even that I do too much. It's that I can't handle it. And so, you know, what what for everybody else is totally fine. For me, just wipes me out the number of times my, you know, it's like, oh, I have a migraine. You have to take me home. But I think there is a freedom. I'm having fun. I'm, I'm having more fun in my 50s than I have ever had before in my life. And it's also... I think I'm very aware now that I'm not somebody who fits in and that's fine. In fact, I love it. I wouldn't want to be somebody who fits in. You know, it started with with the pink hair and and I think that was my kind of experimentation of trying to figure out who I am. And now I realize, you know, I I am whoever I, I feel like on that day. But it's also, it's sifted out the wrong people. And also I think being authentically me has has attracted the right people. So I'm in a really good place. That's amazing. I love that. It's inspiring and awesome. And there's so much, you know, I, I feel like there's so much fear about getting older and this and that, and there's not enough like, Hey, you know what? It gets better. It gets amazing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it really does. I mean, cause you really, you stop. I mean, I still care a little bit. I, you know, somebody wrote to me today that there's, Oh, drama, an author who has sort of bullied me fairly regularly on social media channels. And, and, you know, I went and found what had been posted and and watched it. And, and, you know, five years ago, I, I would have been devastated. I mean, every time this has happened in the past, I have been devastated. And I, I watched it today and I just thought, gosh, you know, this happened 15 years ago. And, and this is, I, I'm, I'm sad that, that this is something that you're carrying that you've been carrying for 15 years. And I just, the fact that it didn't, it didn't floor me. It didn't have me, you know, spend the day in tears or try and, you know, think about doing something in revenge, you know, or, or kind of hit back. It's just like, it's, you know, you, you go, go and, and live your life and, and I'm living mine and actually I'm good. I can't believe someone is bullying you on social media. I can't even <laughs> begin to wonder what they're even saying that would even that could possibly be the negative in this. Now I have to 
go scroll and try to figure it out. Well, and, and this is the thing. I, I realize when you, when you carry things like that about anybody, it's never about them. It, mm-hmm. it just, it's, true. it's never about them. And I, oh, I'm having a hot flash. Look, you can see I'm going scarlet. I did. I actually did yeah. notice that. I was yeah. like, is she getting really upset about this? We can talk no, about something else. No, I'm actually having a hot flash. You know what? I've done I've done a lot of work. I've been in 12-step programs for 20 years. Clearly not, you know, alcohol is not one of them. Perhaps it should be. But I've been in 12-step programs for 20 years. Al-Anon has changed my life. and And I've done the work. And what I know is that other people's behavior is is none of my business, nothing to do with me. So, yeah, so it's really love. And I feel that about just life in general, whereas I used to get so upset. And I'm I'm inherently a pleaser. I want to be liked. I want everybody to like me. And and it used to be so hard when people didn't. And and now I'm it's okay. Well, I really like you. For whatever that's worth. Well, you know, Zibi, let me say something else as well. I think that I, because I felt so insecure, I think I also projected a very different image of who I actually am. Mm. And I think, you know, I I stepped into the role of who I thought I was supposed to be as a best-selling author. And I think also, you know, I'm English and I speak, you know, received pronunciation and I think that can be intimidating and I think people people often assume that I'm quite grand or you know they 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 project things onto me that actually aren't me at all and the thing is today this really is me but you know 15 years ago I do understand how I came across and I also know from my own journey you know I I have given talks and walked into rooms of of very beautiful Park Avenue apartments that have been filled with women that have looked me up and down and and I thought dismissed me. And then I have talked and and I have then had those same women line up to hug me and burst into tears in my arms. And and I realized that I've made exactly the same judgments about them. And it was nothing to do with them. They were just being them. It was it was me. Wow. Yeah. Have you thought about writing a book about this type of thing? Like that's not fiction, that's yes. about this, like, because that would be really powerful, I think. Yes. I, this is something that my agent has been wanting me to do. I, yeah, it's sort of, I'm not quite sure what it would be, kind of a, and he said, don't even worry about what it should be. I mean, whether yep. it's kind of memoir or, or I, because I'm, I'm so nervous about memoir because, uh, you know, nervous about writing about my my family and and my growing up. I've done it a little bit, and you know, I well, my first book actually, where I did write a little bit about my childhood, and you know, my mother stopped talking to me for a while, and then and then eventually sort of phoned up and apologized for my childhood. But you know, and I also recognized my parents did the best they could with the tools they had, which were none. Nobody had tools in those days, so. But I'm, I'm nervous about it. But I do. He said, "Just stream of consciousness." And I'm, I do realize that every time I post something on Instagram or Facebook about this and about you know the, the word authenticity, it's like it's hard for me um, because it, it's just become so ubiquitous now. But but I I think just just we're living in a society that is so judgmental, and particularly on Instagram, we make so many assumptions and I'm guilty of it. You know, when I, in my old house, whenever I posted pictures of my beautiful kitchen, I'd slide the three 
ceiling high piles of crap, you know, six feet off to the side. So the kitchen looked amazing. We all portray our lives as, as beautiful and we don't show the messy and, and the difficult and the hard. Now, sometimes we can't because we're just trying to get through the day and we're just trying to get through it until we can talk about it. But I, yeah, more, I, I, I think there is, there is something in this and I think it, it, yeah, I think I'm, I'm getting ready to start writing about it. Maybe. <laughs> well, if you want to open invitation to publish this with Zivy Books, if you want to do this memoir with us, I mean, honestly, this is exactly the type of story and I'm sure people would be clamoring for your memoir, but this is what we want, showing the mess, showing the real, because yeah. all this hiding, it doesn't help anybody, right? It doesn't help people get through. The clean kitchens are not making anybody feel good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's yeah. something there's something to aspiration, like, oh, I would love... You know, well, your, and your house, I completely fell in love with, as you know, on Instagram, <laughs> that I was like, I'm going to drive up and buy this house. <laughs> I'm kidding. So, I think the key is, because you're right, I love looking at pictures of gorgeous homes. I don't want to, I mean, I was staying at my brother's. You've met my brother, Charlie. I was staying at Charlie's a couple of weeks ago. And three weeks prior, he'd said to me, oh, Jane, I'm showing the house. He's selling his house. I'm showing the house. Can, you know, so just, just let you know. I went, oh, yeah, I'm really good at showing houses. And then, of course, it went out of my head. And so I'm lying in bed in my pajamas, messing around on my computer. Doorbell rings. Some couple is there to see the house. And then an estate agent is there. And he went, oh, sorry, we're a bit early. I went, well, give me 10 minutes. And so I, I quick, I, the kids' toys were all over, so I shoved them under pillows. But I hadn't gone upstairs. So the two sets of people came in to see the house. And it wasn't until they'd gone that I realized there was dog poo all over the garden. The beds were unmade. There were clothes all over the floor in the kids' rooms. And now I was like, Charlie, that's, you can't show a house like this. I was a list of everything he needed to do. But, and there is something for me about seeing, you know, I want, uh, I, I want to buy into the aspirational lifestyle, but I also want the realness and I, I'm happy to have it side by side. So, so I think I, I'm still posting pictures of my house, you know, my teeny tiny little cottage looking gorgeous. And I'm talking about, you know, very real things. And sometimes I, you know, often in stories, you'll see me with no makeup on looking, looking pretty frightening. <laughs> Well, you have an amazing Instagram. It's like enter completely entertaining and you never know what you're going to get. Um, I love it. <laughs> it's true entertainment channels. It's amazing. What's your next book that's scheduled to come out? I don't know, actually. I don't know. I have written a sequel to Sister Stardust, which Ooh. takes two of the characters and, and takes them forward 10 years to 1979, well, slightly less than 10 years, 1979. But that is actually exclusively for a podcast for a new podcast company that I'm actually involved with called Gemini 13. Ooh. And that will be coming out. It's a novella and it will be exclusively available on podcasts. I'm, I don't quite know what I'm going to do with, with the publishing of that. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. So I don't know. May, I, I'm, I'm not sure what okay. the next one will be. So maybe this, maybe this memoir. There you yeah. go. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Amazing. Jane, thank you. It's always so great to talk to you and just to be so real and you're just telling it like it is. I mean, that's, it's the best thing that can happen. So I love it. I really love it. It's refreshing and open and honest and, and you and awesome. So thank you. Thank you. It's, it's always just so lovely seeing you. Thank you, Zibby. Thanks, Jane. Okay. Take care. Bye. Okay.
Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.